Welcome back to the Tank Me Later podcast. My name is Noah Rubin, and this was episode seven. And for this one, I was joined by Josh Lloyd of Basketball Monster and the Locked On Fantasy Basketball podcast. Uh, we talked about the Cavs, the Clippers, and the Grizzlies, kind of broke down them as teams, and then dynasty outlooks for individual players within those teams. We touched on a few other topics, including him being a Dolphins fan, a team that hasn't won a playoff game since the year 2000. Um, but it was just a really good episode with plenty of great content and great information that should help you win your dynasty league, or at least be more competitive, uh, make good moves. Uh, make sure you're liking and subscribing to this podcast wherever you are listening to it from, uh, as well as on YouTube, and checking out my Substack at noahrubin.substack.com uh, for more weekly columns or three times a week. I don't know if tri-weekly columns, I guess is how you would say it, but uh, this is the latest episode of the Tank Mulator podcast. All right, welcome to episode seven of the Tank Me Later podcast. Today I'm joined by the fantasy basketball legend himself, Josh Lloyd. Before I even let him introduce himself, I got to start off with a very quick story. Uh, So I started blurbing for NBC in November of 2021. And before that, my fantasy basketball experience was pretty limited. I knew a lot about the NBA, hadn't done a ton playing in leagues with other people. Uh, So then I guess July or August rolls around. I get to do my first mock draft with, with Josh and uh, you know, popped on while he's doing his live recording. And uh, immediately after I get done, Zach Hanshu uh, was also in that one. So I texted, I was like, Hey man, like, how did I do? Like, you know, I haven't really drafted with anybody else before. How did I do? He's like, listen, man, you don't have to be nervous just because it's Josh Lloyd. Like you can just relax, like just take your time. Like it's okay. I was like, all right. So I didn't know the magnitude of Josh Lloyd, but that just kind of speaks to it. So it's great to have you here. It means a lot. I appreciate, first of all, I appreciate you coming on to my show last week. And uh, yeah, you definitely don't need to be nervous. I'm just a dumb dickhead <laughs> sitting here in Australia that's just like talking about fantasy basketball, mate. There's nothing to be nervous about. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, those things are great. It's always good for the fantasy basketball community. Uh, one of the biggest names here with me. And Josh, I'm just kind of curious. I know you just talked with Adam King pretty recently about it, but how did you kind of get started I'm sure a lot of people already know based off that one, but how'd you get started with fantasy basketball? Yeah, a lot of people heard the story, but that's fine. It's easy to recount. Like basically I um, wanted something to do, right? I just wanted a second hobby. didn't like where my career was. Um, Felt a bit dead end. I was a pharmacist and yeah, my interest was in sports. So initially I started doing some work with uh, pro football focus and just the timing of that, that stuff was hard to maintain. All right. Yeah. I'm, I like the NFL, I like college football, but I also like the NBA and I play a lot of fantasy basketball. So there's not much happening here. And it was about you know, two, three weeks before maybe the 2013 season. There's just really not any content out there. So let's do this. Let's let's just start creating content. And I just bought a website, bought a domain, started writing and just tried to fill in what I thought was absent. And it's like started just doing recaps of games. Like this is what happened today. And my major point was like, the NBA happens every day. Um, we get like shows once a week. Like, what is it? What's that serving? How's that helping anybody? So I started writing articles and then yeah, about three quarters of the way through that season, I think it's good. It's, it's getting some attention from people, but I also want to, I'm, I think I'm also better doing it audio wise. I think I can better get my point across um, uh, verbally 
So the po- podcasts aren't filling what I necessarily need. So let's start one of those. And in between that, I also was noticed by Rotowire and they offered for me to write blurbs like you're just talking about writing blurbs. So I wrote some blurbs for them uh, one day a week uh, early in that season as well. And then yeah, that relationship started to grow and I started to do a little bit more work with them. And then discovery of the podcast and exposure on the um, hardwood proxism fan-sided network and then got uh, offered a job at basketball monster and um, offered to be one of the founding podcasts on the locked on podcast network and from there it sort of just continued on so just out of curiosity for me you mentioned pff you mentioned that you're an nfl fan college fan i don't even know who your nba team is what what teams are you a fan of all right, so we'll start with football because that's easy. I'm a Miami Dolphins fan. I have been since like 1991, which is when I first discovered the NFL here when I was like 10 years old, 11 years old. And the first game that we watched was the Bills versus Dolphins. I picked the Dolphins. My brother picked the Bills. I liked the colors, and that was it. So that's it. Dolphins fan. It's been a pretty, pretty sad existence, to be honest, as a Dolphins fan over that time. But things are looking all right. College, uh, USC is, is my college. I had a friend that went to USC. I was lucky enough to go to a couple of games um, back in 2006 uh, at the Coliseum, tailgating with a bunch of USC students. So that was that was really fun. And USC has been my college team that I support since then. Basketball, when I grew up, it was the Chicago Bulls because, of course, I grew up when yeah, they were winning all their championships. And the exposure to the NBA here was pretty limited. So it was just Jordan. Like it was Lakers. It was Jordan. It was, weirdly enough, Charlotte Hornets because those colors and starter jackets and Hornets jackets were big at that time. But I don't. I'm not. I'm not a Bulls fan anymore. Once I started getting into this industry um, and covering the entirety of the NBA, like becoming a or maintaining fandom of one team is pretty tough to do. And also, yeah, pretty pissed off with you, know, Gar Foreman and John Paxson and Jerry Reinsdorf, and like they give you any hope to maintain that fandom of a team and you're know, trying to maintain a level of media neutrality. So I just was like, I just I can't be a fan of a team anymore. Yeah, you have the Dolphins and the Bulls. I'm sure the Dolphins are doing better, but those are two teams that aren't exactly. But if you can see behind me, sorry, I guess it's this side. I have my my Jets pictures here. So oh, yeah. <laughs> kind, of, kind of in the same. That's right. Maybe, maybe you can uh, maybe you can do the do a Kings this season and uh, break the longest running um, American professional postseason drought, which the Jets now hold the title to. <laughs> Listen, if we are <laughs> playing competitive football, go nine and eight, and get blown out in the first round of the playoffs. That's a successful season to me. So it it's better than it what is. it's been. So, um, but yeah, I'm sure we can talk about depressing football teams. We can also talk about uh, fantasy basketball and dynasty leagues. We have a few teams that we're going to talk about uh, that have already been eliminated from the playoffs. And we're going to start in Cleveland with the Cavaliers who were eliminated in the first round by the Knicks. I'm pretty sure most people thought they would win that series, but they mm-hmm. lost in five. Pretty, pretty surprising. I've seen a lot of, People saying that maybe they move on from J.B. Bickerstaff. I know that the team has kind of said they're not going to. Is that a move that you think that would benefit them, or is that something? Is that not the issue here? Um, I've sort of gone back and forth on this. Like I was never a, a Bickerstaff fan as when he was the coach of the Rockets. I didn't understand the hire. I thought he was pretty bad initially. I thought he changed my mind a little bit last season, but it gets to a stage also where it's is it the coach that made them better or was it the players that made them better? And is the coach now holding them back? And I think that while it's brutal, these guys do get paid a ton. Um, It it is a brutal decision, but when you get to a stage where you're debating it and you think, well, I don't think this guy can ever get us to an extra level, then you just got to move on. I don't think there's any point in sticking around with JB and 
you know, when you look at the roster and who they are, is there, unless you're talking like a, just a completely horrific coach, is the baseline of any other coach you bring in, you know, playoffs, first round exit? I think yes, with that squad it is. Like that's the baseline, no matter who it is that gets brought in. So what are you losing out on if you fire him? Can he improve? Can coaches improve? They absolutely can. But I'd also be very interested in finding a guy who's a little bit more creative um, offensively, especially to try and do a little bit more. And I think, again, if internally you're having the decision, do we move on? Then do it. I think once you start having that doubt, that's it. Like you don't recover from that. I I don't think anyway. And I think that there's always going to be the exception, but most of the time moving on will be the right decision. And in general, as despite people crying, man, look at all these coaches of the year that got fired in general, NBA teams move on too slowly from coaches. Yeah. I mean, we just saw Mike Budenholzer get fired two years after winning a championship. So teams, I mean, like you said, sometimes it's never too quick, but sometimes it feels like it is, but you know, Budenholzer wants staff, a little bit different. Be... I think Budenholzer is a little bit different because I, I, given that roster, I'm not sure what other coach could with the injuries they had could have gotten them to the number one seed. Um, yes. The, he has some playoff issues, but yeah, another coach comes in like who I don't, he has proven that he can be this very, very strong coach continually, even with flawed rosters. So it's a little bit different to me. Whereas again, put whoever you want as the coach of the Cavs, pretty sure they get minimum six seed with that, with that team, irrespective. It's not bigger staff doing smoke and mirrors to get them there. Yeah. And the big move that Cleveland did make was bringing in Donovan Mitchell, obviously, uh, but that didn't really impact his fantasy value negatively. He had his best, the best per game nine cat season of his career. I think he finished 16th. Um, do you think he can kind of maintain that level of production, maintain that efficiency as, you know, hopefully they add more talent or more depth and Garland and Mobley kind of grow? I was very skeptical of him doing it this season. I thought that he would take a step back and be instead of like what he was like 25th, I think the year before, like he might be 35th. Um, he was able to do it this season for a couple of reasons. Way more minutes than I thought. 36 minutes a game is a lot, man. Like it's, it's possibly too many. He also was able to shoot significantly better as well, like 56% on twos and what he hit 39% of his threes and still maintained one and a half steals per game. So it was really, really good. But also, towards the end of the season, Mitchell started to tail off a little bit. And I think if you expect you know, a top 20 finish or a top 16 finish again from Mitchell, I think he might get let down a little bit. I just think there are a few things there that it all tied in. Huge minutes, huge usage, increase in efficiency. And that's always hard to maintain. Yeah, definitely. But he's only, I guess he's 27, kind of entering into his prime. So, yep. I guess depends on if a new coach is if well, I guess we bigger staff again. Uh, but if that changes next season, I mean, we saw him he struggled against the Knicks in the playoffs. Would they look to maybe limit his minutes more during the regular season? Part of that, ready for that, part of that's got to be roster construction as well, because they yeah, and fair enough, like they didn't trust their bench guys. They didn't trust Hal Neto. Ricky Rubio didn't look like himself. Like Isaac, Isaac Okoro, Karis Levert, like they're not the answer. They're not providing anything, and it's a little bit of the criticism of like Nick Nurse of like. You're giving these guys too many minutes, but bloody hell, what are your other options? Like he had some other options, but yeah, that if you get a more coherent bench group, then he doesn't need to play 36. And that's part of the the part of the brilliance. I think we go back to Budenholzer of that they didn't have the greatest bench group, but he knew how to use those guys to help decrease the load on some of his um better players, which you know Bickerstaff didn't really have the creativity to do. 
And the other guard alongside Mitchell, Darius Garland, uh, he was, I believe, top 40 uh, the previous season. And I expected, I'm sure a lot of people did, if that if Mitchell was going to kind of tail off a little bit, that he would as well. His value would drop. And it did slightly, but not that much. He's still had another top 50 season. I've seen him ranked really high in a lot of uh, dynasty rankings. Do you think playing alongside Mitchell in that backcourt that they can both play together and kind of reach their fantasy potential? Um, I think that a lot of what we saw with Garland this season was sort of what I expected. Like I didn't get what I expected out of Mitchell. He was better, but I did expect a bit of a drop off from Garland. So what he did this year feels sustainable, but you want to talk fantasy ceiling. Like I don't think he can hit it if he's sharing it with Donovan Mitchell because him hitting his fantasy ceiling is being the number one player is like, what was his usage this season? It was 27. Like his ceiling is 30 usage with nine assists instead of 27 usage and under eight assists. Um, So hitting his ceiling would mean that he is the number one player. And I just don't think that's going to be the case. He's still going to be good. Like he's still, yeah, really good. Like he's still, and he's only 23. So there's plenty of time for him to actually get into his prime. By the time he hits 27, Mitchell will be 30. And then maybe that's when the switch happens where Garland is the number one guy. And, and I, would, I wouldn't rule like – how – I'll ask you a question, Noah. Like, it's not crazy to suggest that in two years' time, Garland's a better player than Mitchell. Like, he's four years younger or three, three and a half years younger than him. So by, in three years' time, he's at the same spot that Mitchell is now. Like, he should be better than him, yeah? I would think so. I would think, yes. I would – I mean, I guess it also kind of assumes, are they still the same backcourt? Are they still the backcourt in Cleveland? Do they well, try and run a backcourt for you? I don't remember this contract off the top of my head, but I would I'll, think I'll, that if... You talk, I'll look it up. Yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, if in two years' time, if it's three straight first-round exits, I mean, are they looking to move on from one of them? Or is somebody demanding a trade-out? Like, Or if Mitchell's contract is up, is he walking if it's Cleveland and they haven't won anything and they've kind of tried everything. Mitchell's got two more years okay. and then he's got a $37 million player option starting the 2025 season, which you would assume he opts out of. And I guess part of it is like, he didn't want to go to Cleveland. Um, he's been good there and he's embracing it and all that. That's not to say he wants to leave, but he can leave in two years. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that in two years time, Mitchell will be what 29 Garland will be 25 they could have equaled out and Garland could have already taken a step ahead and Mitchell could be gone by then. So when we're talking dynasty value of Garland, like it might be a plateau for two years or it might be a plateau for three years, but I think it's going to spike back up later on. So good time to buy in. I think so. Yeah. Well, if, if you get it at the, the right price or yeah, there is, yeah. there is still more ups. Like again, compare and contrast has Mitchell got upside from here. I'm not sure. Has Garland. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he does. Yeah. And then the guy who has the most upside on the team, I think you had him sixth and I had him fifth in our rankings from this past three classes. Evan Mobley, uh, he's a fifth rounder in his second season. What is his ceiling? I've, I've heard Kevin Garnett comparisons. Is, is he a guy that's going to be top 10 for 10 years? Kevin Garnett was like, what, what did he peak out at two, three, like pretty high because Garnett was able to do a lot, right? Garnett was able to be, a high, high-level scorer. He was able to be efficient. He blocked tons of shots. He also was able to generate a lot of assists with very high rebounds. And I still have a couple of question marks with Mobley on those things. Like, I've seen him have better scoring nights with higher usage. I think he's got some passing skills. Garnett was actually a very underrated passer. He was an unbelievably good passer. And so I think he might be like a half tier or tier below what Garnett was able to do. 
from an all-round fantasy skill set. Garnett also probably could have hit threes if he had chosen to, and we're not there with Mobley yet. And Mobley's also a worse free-throw shooter from memory. Garnett was a better free-throw shooter than this. So, you know, if your ceiling is Garnett, that's top five. I don't know about that. Top 15, sure. Like, yes. Like, it's not it's not hard to see. We talk about yeah, Garland overtaking Mitchell. At some point, Mobley's overtaking Allen and playing the majority of minutes at center, which boosts his blocks, boosts his field goals boost his rebounds, and if Mitchell does move on and things switch over, then his usage goes up. So very easily, like 24 and 12, is that a possibility for Mobley? I, I wouldn't rule that out. 28 and 12, probably not. But 24, 23 and 12 with two blocks, yeah, absolutely. He is a real monster. But there are still a few things that hold him back, like volume of threes, uh, assists, um, free throw shooting can all hold him back as well. Yeah, and I guess also – like you mentioned, playing alongside Mitchell, playing alongside Garland, is he going to get a chance to necessarily showcase that passing, the offensive volume? I think there's the, even if the talent's there, I think with the the four guys that they have, and we can talk about Jared Allen here in a second, it's they're kind of all limiting each other's fantasy potential because if if Garland's got the ball in his hands, you know he could be 25 and you know nine assists, like you said. Same thing with Mobley, but with Jared Allen, his you know, he's have been a third round guy the past two seasons, even with Evan Mobley next to him. Do you think he can continue to do that? I mean, I know he's not old. As Evan Mobley gets better, is he still a third round guy? Is he still a top 50 guy? Like how, how much of a hit does he take, I guess? Uh, under no circumstance would I value him as a third round guy. Like I just, I just don't think that's realistic at mm-hmm. all. Alan's pretty good, but a lot of the time when I'm looking at dynasty leagues, I haven't come up with a good term for it, but you know, I keep changing my mind on what the term is, but it's, my like are you set test all right so do you look at your team and go all right we're done our center is planned out the next 10 years it's jared allen and the answer is no right you don't go oh we're done here at center we we are set we've got jared allen because you immediately you go well actually evan mobley is going to be our center so where does that leave allen right and if you're not set on a guy then there's a lot more uncertainty about where he sits can he still be really good yeah he can be He's a very useful player. He's 25. He's not old at all, but he's not a game changer. He's not a guy that you, under any circumstance, don't want to upgrade from. Whereas Mobley, you don't probably want to upgrade from. And even probably Garland, like how do you upgrade from that long-term? Like I don't know that you do. So that's my issue, I guess, there with with Allen. And he's, you know, he scores okay. He rebounds well. He's got good field goal percentage, but... Overall, he's not well-rounded. He's never going to be well-rounded. He's never going to be getting assists or hitting threes or being a high-usage player. That stuff's not going to continue. And like, he was an all-star last season. Like, what's the over-under on future all-stars? 0.5? Like, it's not It's not high. Like, he's not – I don't think he's that guy. Like, he's useful. But it wouldn't surprise me, Noah, if he turns more into a Stephen Adams type of player versus elevates into being a well, – he's not going to be Joel Embiid, but into a – yeah, a level below that in terms of fantasy contributor. For sure. And I guess also if they're not having any success in the playoffs, how long do they keep running with Mobley and Allen mm-hmm. as their as their uh front court? Just because yep. most teams aren't. I mean, everybody's using a smaller power forward. Would you rather try and get Mobley at center just to have him have more success there with a smaller lineup? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That you can't have two centers or two seven footers playing together but one of them's got to be able to shoot and neither of them can at this point. Yeah. And that spacing gets to be a problem, especially when your three also can't shoot. So maybe that could be alleviated if you've got an actual proper winger there. Like if Oji Ananobi played at the three, it's probably easier to deal with having those two together. But when it's Isaac Okoro, 
or it's Karis Levert bricking shots, like that leads to way more problems. Yes, my next question was going to be, is there anybody else on this team that kind of excites you outside of their core four for any sort of dynasty format, I guess? Because, I mean, Karis LeVert, Isaac Okoro, they tried like four other options as that fifth starter, but none of them really seemed to work. No, not really. Like, Okoro is still only 22, really young. He's had a few little moments, but there's just no there's no offensive juice there. I don't think there's no, like, well, he's going to be a good shooter. He's going to be this guy who handles the ball. Like if you can't shoot, you've got to be dangerous with the ball in your hands. And he's not, no one cares that his team doesn't care to have the ball in his hands. The opponents don't care when the ball in his hand is in his hands. So in the end, he probably ends up profiling more like a worse Herb Jones, like a guy that will get some defensive stats and could be really good out there. But for fantasy, I, I don't really see the upside. And again, I think it was exposed in these playoffs is that they just need an upgrade that position. So the are you set test is pretty negative in his set in his um position, I think. And so for trying to upgrade that position, I don't know if you can think of somebody off the top of your head that's not on the roster. I'll throw out a name that's not, I'm just gonna say I don't believe this will happen, but I saw somebody toss around the name Dylan Brooks of a guy that could kind of maybe fill the mold of a defender slash I don't really know exactly what they were thinking with how he would fill the mold, but somebody that's off the roster that could possibly fill that spot and have fantasy success. Like what would that look like with either an archetype or a player? Um, well, Dylan Brooks can't have fantasy success in this role because that's just who he is. Now I am the absolute leader of the Dylan Brooks is a bad player or a guy that limits <laughs> what you can do train, but he's significantly better than Isaac Okoro. And I have no problem in saying that, that Dylan Brooks is a really, really good defensive player. The problem with Dylan Brooks is, is in his head. It's like if he accepted being, a smaller offensive role player without it completely screwing up what he does, then he'd be perfect, honestly, because he can shoot a little bit. He can pass a little bit. He can do something okay, but he gets in his head. When I got the ball, I'm the best player in the world. Everyone get out of the way and has no ability to um, reel that in. Now he doesn't have to be low usage like a Coro, but I just worry that his mentality doesn't allow him to actually be useful to a team. So theoretically, sure, yeah. But you'd need someone with a different brain in that body to to lead to that success. And that's why he's a bad fantasy player because he has such horrible efficiency numbers and he doesn't really do enough across the board and just hurts you in too many areas. And while he, he's an upgrade over a Coro, that you need the actual right, the right incarnation or inca- well, yeah, incarnation of D- Dylan Brooks. And I know that ever comes. OG Ananobi is the perfect guy here. Like that's that's the perfect player. Getting him, I don't know how you do it, but that's the perfect player. Like Mikael Bridges, that's the perfect player on this team. But how, how do you find that player? I've got no idea. Some sort of three and D guy where they had six guys try out for that role and they were all either three or D. None of them were both. I guess that's kind of what they try to do and what they need to try and find this offseason. I'll tell you what's really interesting with this with this team, with this draft, is that they, they don't – do they have their first-round pick? They don't. They I think don't, Indiana no. does. Yeah, Indiana's got it. So they don't even have their first round pick. But this draft is so deep and it's not filled with centers and point guards. It's it's a lot of twos, threes, and fours. So if there was a way, and I don't think there really is, for them to get up into the 15, 16 range, there would be players available there who would help them what they with what they needed. But they don't have the ability to get that player. Mm-mm. Nope. So I guess... 
I mean, free agency or trade is probably what they'll have to try and there's, figure out there. There's nobody though. There's there's no small forwards available <laughs> in free agency. Like who is who is there? Like Jeremy Grant? Like you're not going to be able to get him. They got no cap space. You can't afford him. Yeah. Kyle Kuzma. Yeah, he's not a good defender though. Mm-hmm. Like, who, who do you get to fit that to fit that role? I honestly don't know. It sounds like it's Dylan Brooks. Yeah, what he Dylan Brooks? People think he's he's going to China. He's going to find an NBA role, but yeah, he's teams are going to want him because he's a really good defender. But it's just getting into his head and trying to fix that up, which I don't know is if it's possible or not. And I think also after he hit Donovan Mitchell, uh, mm, I don't think that's, that's necessarily going to work out well there. Um, but if we can move to the West, but we will get to the Grizzlies and we will get to some brief. We'll we'll keep it brief next time, Dylan Brooks talk. But before that, we'll talk about the Clippers uh, who. Lost in the first round to the Suns after Shocker dealing with some injuries with Kawhi and Paul George. Uh, they were they won game one without Paul George and then Kawhi didn't play. I think I think he played game two and then didn't play the rest of the series. Lost in five. What is on a scale of one to ten? What's your confidence level for keeping Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and just having them for even sixty games? Like how confident are you that that will ever happen? Um. They weren't far off 60 this year, 56 and 52 mm-hmm. for George and, and Kawhi. And Kawhi would have easily hit that had he not had the ankle injury earlier in the season. Um, the thing, this, this is the thing that's frustrating with them is that there's so much misinformation about these players or about their injury history or any of this stuff that gets thrown out there. Like Kawhi was playing like 38 minutes a night and missed like three games after January or something like that. Like he played every game, basically. He missed a couple of back-to-backs, but also played two back-to-backs down the stretch. He played basically every game and played tons and tons of minutes. And you know, then he tears his meniscus. And I think part of this is, is people complain so much about this now, about you know, every star player is missing time and getting hurt. Well, part of the reason for that is that the more you're out there on the court, the more opportunities there are for you to get injured. Like what happened to Paul George is nothing to do with Paul George. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not like, oh, you know, how soft is he? Or like he went up for a rebound. He landed, got knocked, and his knee bent inwards. Like, well, that can happen to anybody at any point. But the more times you go up for a rebound, the more times you're on the court, the more likely that is to occur. And that happens with everybody. Like Kevin Durant and his knee going up for a rebound, someone banged into it, MCL, sprain. That just The more you're out there, the more this stuff happens. So, and as everyone will complain, every star is always missing time. Yeah, because they're out on the court and they're getting banged into every five minutes. Do these guys get weird stuff happen? Sure. Like Paul George, what tore his elbow ligaments last season? Okay, but is that like a personal failing? Like I, to me, it's really hard to. You know, then he got COVID in the plane. Is that what does that mean? Injury prone? Nothing. It's got nothing to do with it. So it's frustrating. It's a lot of sort of snake bitten type production from these guys because you, you know, it just random stuff happens. But I, what do you, what do you do? Like they can't do anything about this. They can't. You know, if they go through and sit them half of the games, which people already think they do, which they don't, to preserve them, you still can get hurt at any point. And it's about trying to like prevent the wear and tear type injuries, which they did a great job of doing that. But you can't prevent a tear of an MCL. You just can't do it. Like on MCL, so a meniscus, you can't prevent that. It just happens. And it's just frustrating that it keeps going that way. And I don't really know what they can do about it. Definitely. I think off the top of my head, the main injuries that I can even think of throughout their career, Paul George snapped his leg in half playing overseas. Yep. Like in, I think it was the Olympics. And then Kawhi had Zaza Pachulia undercut him. And he, I 
I don't remember if that was a knee or ankle injury in the playoffs when they were about to beat ankle, those Warriors yeah. team. Ankle. Ankle. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, you can't control those things, obviously. But as, if you have them on a dynasty roster, I think Kawhi will be 32 when the season starts. Paul George will mm-hmm. be 33. You know, not everybody's LeBron and can play till they're 40. At what point do you kind of say, all right, I, I tried this enough. I probably need to move on and get some value before it's not even the injuries. It's just their age. We're there now, but you wouldn't, you're not, you can't trade them now. Like it's the worst mm-hmm. possible. No, it's not the worst time, but it's pretty close to it. Like no one's going to be like, yeah, please. Can I have Kawhi after he suffered another yeah, season ending knee injury? Yeah. Paul George didn't play the last 25 games. Like, yeah, I'll give you good value for him. Like what you needed to do if you were going to trade Kawhi is when he was playing 40 minutes a night and he was the fifth best player in fantasy over the final three months of the season. Like that's when you needed to trade him. And so you need to hope they get back on the court and they will and put together some moments there. Cause you're right. That, the, with the injuries that both of these guys have accumulated, they're not going to be LeBron. Like literally nobody is going to be LeBron. So by the time they're 34 or 35, like they won't be top five or top 10 or top 20. They'll be top 30 and top 45 with more injuries built on top of that. But trading them now, what are you getting back? Like think if you're in a position, you don't have quite, what the hell are you giving up for him? Nothing. Yeah? You're not giving anything of value to get him. Not at all. But the guy that benefited from their injuries in the playoffs, Russell Westbrook, who was, let me pull up his playoff stats. He averaged during that series 23.6 points, 7.6 rebounds, 7.4 assists, 1.2 steals, 1.4 blocks, two threes. Shot 41%, but he had two awful, awful shooting performances and three pretty good ones. Assuming he's back with the Clippers, I believe he's an unrestricted free agent, can kind of mm-hmm. sign wherever, but kind of seems like he'll be back with the Clippers is he a guy that you can see getting back to top 100 value or around there, assuming he's starting and playing alongside with the guys right now? Or is it, or is that just kind of like a, a personal series where he got to show what he could do and now that they're, they'll be healthier, he, he won't get anywhere near that? Yeah, he got to show it that he could do and they lost every game. Um, you know what I mean? Like it's, and we yeah. talk age, he's going to be 35 when the season starts. Like he's old. You know what I mean? Like he's not, he's two years, two and a half years older than Kawhi. So we saw plenty of times when he played with Kawhi and Paul George that he wasn't really relevant. They would play him 27 minutes a night. Sometimes he wouldn't be out there to close games. And this has always been the case with Russ is when the things are tailored around him that he'll generate stats. There's no problem with that, but does it actually, what does it actually lead you to anything good? Probably not. And yeah, you know, I do think he'll be back. Like they can't pay him a huge amount here because they don't have bird rights. They can give him like a middle of exception, six, seven million. But does he want that? I don't know. Do they want to pay him that? But what team would put him in the position that he was in on this Clippers team in the playoffs where their two stars are out and he had to run the show? Like I don't see that situation arising anywhere. So he's thirty. He's going to be 35 at the start of the season. It's an uncertain situation as to where he's going to be or what his role is going to be. And there will be plenty of people who love Russ and saw what he did in the playoffs and will we'll quote those stats that you just read out. But that's not really based in reality. Like that doesn't indicate anything to me of what he's going to do as we move forward. So I guess, are you more confident in him heading into next season than you were heading into this past season or are you less confident? Hmm. That's a good question because I was very not confident heading into this season because I said that I think that his minutes um, downside is actually zero heading into this season. So I thought like he could get traded and not even get bought out, just like 
told to go home and not go anywhere. So I was like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. And then he played more minutes than I thought and still wasn't really useful for category leagues. And then even when he even when he was with the Clippers in the regular season, like the numbers weren't spectacularly good because they limited what he did because it didn't work having him out there with those other players. So I've got more comp- more confidence than I did last offseason because I thought he could get traded. Ironically, I thought he could get traded to like Utah and they just wouldn't buy him out because they didn't want to pay him $40 million and he'd just sit there and not play. Um, but I don't have supreme confidence in him. Again, Like I don't think we look at Westbrook, who is an absolute freak athlete and doesn't play like he's 35, but he's 35. So at some point, something's going to drop away and it, it already has to a large degree. But yeah, I have I've very little faith in in him finding the role that suits Westbrook versus suiting the team. And then there's one other guy on the Clippers that I kind of like, and it's Zubats. Is So he played 28.4 minutes per game last season. Basically, as soon as they traded for Mason Plumley, Tyron Lue kind of cut his minutes back to like 24-ish, I want to say. Is there any hope? I mean, he was the only center on the roster to open the season, really. I think Moses mm-hmm. Brown was on like a an Exhibit 10 or non-guaranteed or something like that. But he's basically the only center. They still weren't playing him big-time minutes. Does he have any hope to play enough of a role to ever be a top 100 guy? Or as long as he's with the Clippers, he's going to see 24 to 26 minutes max, and he's just never going to get the chance to? I disagree with you a couple of things there in terms of other guys are interesting. I think there's two other guys in this team that are pretty interesting, which I'll say their names in a second. But as for Zubats, on this team, I think this might be the peak. Like the, As you said, there was no centers, but they don't want to play big minutes to their centers. We saw that as soon as Plumlee's there, who's not good. Like Zubats got cut back and they still played 10 to 12 minutes without a center. And if you're going to have Westbrook there, you can't play him and Zubats together for long periods of time. It's just not enough shooting. So they, they could chuck a million other guys out there to fill that role. But on another team that does have decent shooting and doesn't fully buy, it doesn't have all these really interesting forward type players that they can play as small ball centers. And Zubats could play 29. There's no reason that Zubats couldn't play 29 minutes a night the way that a peak Jonas Valanciunas did, like different offensive players. Obviously, Zubats a way better defender. Valanciunas a way better offensive player. But on a different team, yeah, like he could put up good numbers. But I fear that it would be like you have a two to three win, two to three year window to do that. He's not a player that you're just going to put everything into. Like he's solid enough. He probably should play more than he does in the Clippers, but in two, three years' time, that's that's going to dip. The other guys that I think are interesting, Noah, uh, Bones Highland, and you know, want to go real deep. I think BJ Boston's a very, very interesting player who's still only 21 and is never going to get the chance on this team. But you want to talk about all these guys being old, but this is, you know, that's the potential future, maybe a, a Bones and BJ backcourt when these other guys like Westbrook and Kawhi and Paul George are older like two three years time that that they could be useful i agree i liked bones highland when he was in denver but didn't really see a path for him for minutes and then the clippers obviously there isn't a really path for him anytime soon but it could happen in the future and then brandon boston just such like a a young guy that they took a flyer on i remember when i think he was really highly rated in high school and then going into his first year or his year of college and then yep just didn't do well at all at Kentucky. And then he went in the second round, I believe, of that Yeah, it was late, like, like in the 50s, I think. Yeah. So, I I mean, when he plays, that electric offense that he's that I've, he's provided a handful of times, it's exciting to watch. But I guess how does he develop? He's, I think he's definitely a guy 
especially in deeper rostered leagues that keeping around having as a flyer. But I just question whether the Clippers, like what's their direction after Paul George and Kawhi? Like they don't have any picks. They have a bunch of aging guys. I guess, yeah, like if they don't have any picks or anybody that really is, those are the two guys on the roster that are young enough that they will see big minutes. Or do they just keep bringing in more aging veterans and aging veterans? I guess, where do they go? At some point, they have to pivot, right? Like, you can keep bringing in guys, and Barmer's always going to pay that money. But at some point, you're going to have to pivot because George and Kawhi just aren't going to be it anymore. And then, so then you end up moving on from them and Powell and Gordon and Zubats and everyone. Everyone could be going Batum and all these guys. They're not going to stick around. But if they are looking to give slight upgrades to this team around those two stars now, and they don't have huge draft capital, the asset they have is BJ Boston that someone might want to take a flyer on. And I said he's 21. Like Someone like Chris Murray is probably going to get drafted in the top 20 of this year's draft, and BJ's two years younger than him, right? So age is a very interesting thing in Dynasty Leagues, but he's, he's super young. Like 21, he's, he's really young. He's had a couple of years in the NBA. Like, yeah, I'm not saying he's going to be a star, but there's yeah, enough flashes there where I'm – marginally interested in what he can do yeah and i guess i guess we'll end on the clippers with one question one more question if they are healthy this isn't really a fantasy question but say they're able to have Kawhi and paul george healthy for a playoff run do you think that they're a championship team yeah i do like i think they would have beaten phoenix like they already took a game off them without Paul George and then Kawhi busted his meniscus in game two. I think they could have beaten Phoenix. I think they are good enough to do it. Um, I don't know whether they will or not because something always goes wrong, but I think I think they are. I think they are a championship caliber team. Just there's you know, so many questions about whether that actually gets realized. Yeah, and I think that also gives them some hesitancy if they're ever going to try and pivot or when they should pivot mm. if they just keep feeling like they can win a championship if things just kind of go their way which is how it ends up working in the NBA so many times. Whoever the injury bug doesn't hit is who wins. And then everybody puts an an asterisk next to every championship saying, well, if this injury didn't happen, well, if this injury didn't happen, well, of course it's sports, but Mm. that's my little rant. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, So then the last team we'll talk about the Grizzlies two seed in the West, a lot of momentum, despite kind of a, an awkward season uh, with, you know, John Morant, having that suspension for a period of time still went in as the two seed and then just kind of ran into a Lakers team that was much better than a seven seed because their moves to the deadline playing well and just really a bad matchup for them. In your opinion, do you think that the Lakers kind of exposed some issues with the Grizzlies or do you think that if John Morant was healthy for the full series, if Steven Adams was healthy for that series and Dylan Brooks didn't run his mouth, that they could have won that. First of all, I don't think Dylan Brooks running his mouth does anything. Like it's got, I, I think that people will say like, oh man, I can't believe the Grizzlies are using him as a scapegoat and, you know, to, because he talked bad to them. It's not that. It's the whole season of bullshit from Dylan Brooks, really, that added up to that. And honestly, it's his in, inability to be a positive offensive player versus like, hey, you said some stuff to LeBron that caused him to go. I don't think that's anything to do with it. The Stephen Adams factor is twofold. Yes, it's a huge thing not having him and Brandon Clark out there and not having those big guys to deal with LeBron and to deal with Davis and their size and the way that these guys drive into the paint. That's a huge thing that opens up so much for this team. But when your team has to rely upon Stephen Adams, 
then you might want to look at where, how your team's constructed because you know, Stephen Adams can't be the the fulcrum as to which your team balances on. It, it can't be. like that, that can't be the only yeah, – yes, if you use Jar Moran and Jaron Jackson and your team struggles, yeah, fair enough, right? They're their two best players. If you leave, lose Stephen Adams and you can't recover from it, then there's extra extra issues that need to be addressed there because you know your season shouldn't hinge on Stephen Adams's participation. I don't think. So, what do you think? I guess going into this past season, after last year, the Grizzlies kind of seemed like one of the better run organizations in the league. I think there was you know a couple moves they made this off season that may not have worked out as well, but they were you know a very deep team, seemed to have a good culture. And brought in a bunch of young guys like uh, Kenneth Lofton, David Roddy, some guys that showed flashes here and there. To now, it's you know a lot of people are questioning everything about their culture and about their depth. I know like the DeAnthony Melton move to get like move him to Philly. That I mean Melton probably would have helped a lot in that series. Do you think? I guess what kind of happened with Memphis to kind of change people's viewpoint of them? Um, I'll tell you what happened for me. Like. I was very big on a lot of the stuff they did in the draft, but I also criticized their trade up to get Zaya Williams two years ago. I didn't really think that made any sense to me. I would have much rather they just had Trey Murphy. And I think that looks like pretty good in hindsight. And I criticized them heavily this last off season. I think in, even in my preseason projections, I had them maybe sixth in the West. Now, obviously they ended up second, but letting Kyle Anderson walk, who would have been huge for them, trading Dante Mountain to get David Roddy, who I didn't really value as a prospect either. It didn't make any sense to me. I didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know why they made those moves. It seemed to go away from a lot of the things that they had done previously in terms of um, approaching players and, and using players. It didn't make any sense. It was something that where the team had started to show some stuff, maybe you should start to go forward and, and consolidate and bring other guys in, whether they just sort of decided they were taking a step backwards and I didn't really understand what they were doing. And then of course there is the, the jar and, and Dylan Brooks culture stuff, which is obviously causing some issues. We know John Moran stuff. We know Dylan Brooks stuff is not going to be there. And now they're in a position where how do they replace Dylan Brooks? They don't really have the cap space to do it. Like what, how do they do that? How do they replace, replace him in that lineup? Who's the guy that comes in to defend these other players? Cause isn't the play that guy's not in the roster. So I, I, and I think, again, moving on from Brooks is probably the right call, given the fact that he can't pull his head in. But I think that some of their downfall started probably two years ago with the Zaya Williams move and was compounded last offseason. And I'm uh, very, very interested to see where this goes. But the guy that's going to be there, and it's going to be there for a very long time, is Ja. Uh, mm-hmm. He was 83rd in nine cat this this season, 48th the season before but I think a lot of what he does, like his nine, his nine cap value isn't as good as his actual impact on the court. Is he a guy where you kind of take some of the categories where he's limited in and maybe don't worry about them as much? Like, do you view him, let's say he was 83rd this past season, as a guy that's kind of never going to get to the top 25 in nine cap value, but can still impact fantasy more than that, if that makes sense? Yeah, look, his his issues are shooting. It's three point volume. It's steel volume, and I don't really think it's ever going to change. Honestly, like, has there? He came into the league with problems with defense. He came into the league with shooting concerns. There've been improvements, sure, but not enough. And I think they're just always going to be deficiencies. Like, I don't think you to, to overcome that. He probably needs to average thirty and ten, right? And not sure he's ever going to get to that. 
but yeah, the free throws, the free throw volume is not dropping. That so the percentage needs to increase. But what are we? We're four years in, and have we ever seen really a, a positive trend line on that? Not really. The steal rate, the three point volume, like it just it goes up and it goes down. It goes up and it goes down. I think at this point you have to just assume that this is what it is. And while we could see a little bit more, like he only played what thirty two minutes a night, so there's room for volume to increase there. But he also plays 32 minutes a night, A, because they have some depth, but also because he can be reckless and gets banged up quite a bit as well. And that limits what he can do there. So, yeah, you have to worry a little bit about that overall fantasy ceiling. It's still obviously really valuable and you sort of can build around some of his weaknesses. But I think going in and go, well, I've got Jar, and in the next four years, he's going to figure out to be a volume three-point shooter and be a better free throw guy and get and get way more steals. I think you're probably going to end up being disappointed if you are banking on that being the improvement. Yeah, I think, you know, he's, like you said, averaging 26 and eight with six rebounds, a steal. Where where does he improve on that? I mean, that's, I think that's kind of what my opinion was going into this past mm-hmm. season. Like after last year was he just had this great season where people were saying, yeah, you should be considered for MVP, especially with how well they're playing. And he averaged 27.4.6.7 assists. But it's like, how much better does he get? Like, what does he have to do statistically? You mentioned 30 and 10. I mean, if he averages 30 and 10, then I'll bite my tongue and like just kind of admit I was wrong. But I don't think he ever gets there. I don't think he's that kind I of think like, that, yeah. There are a few things, right? He, so he shot under 31% from three. He's never going to be a good three point shooter, but he could shoot 33 or 34%. He shot under 52% from two. You know, he could move that to 55%. These aren't big changes, but three percentage points on your threes and on your twos takes that 46% up to say 48 or 48.8 or whatever it is. That's a little bit of a help. And that gives you an extra one and a half points, you know, 27 and a half, 28 points. Play 33 minutes instead of 32 is a little nudge up there as well. But again, it's going to come down to, do I ever see him being a guy that instead of attempting, what did he attempt? 4.9 threes per game. Does he ever get to seven per game? Probably not. Does he ever get to six per game? Probably not. Is he ever going to take enough of them? And will he ever hit 2.2 threes a game? Will he ever get 1.5 steals? I'd say, again, no, is the likely answer to those questions. So that really limits his overall upside. Yeah. And then the other guy, well, I guess there's two other guys that I think will be around for a very long time. But Jaron Jackson Jr., just Mm -hmm. one defensive player of the year. Uh, he was 14th in nine cat value this season. His total value—I don't remember exactly what it was—but it's still really high despite missing the first however many games of the season. Um, if he can get to, like, do you think he can get to 32 to 34 minutes per game? Will he be in foul trouble too much to get there? Um, but if that happens, do you see him as a top 10 guy? 34 is probably too much, I reckon. Noah, um, 31, 32, sure. I don't think he's ever going to be a 34-minute-a-night player. But he only played 28 minutes a night this season. So you get to 30, 31, that's already enough to be a close to a top 10 player. The problem that we have, I think, with some of these guys, like he's 23, as you get older, unless you're Brooke Lopez, as you get older, usually your block numbers decrease. You don't go for as many blocks. You lose 0.5% athleticism. That just impacts stuff. He's still an unbelievable shot blocker. And I say this all the time, like 2.4 blocks per game is awesome. Like it's a great number. It's not three though, right? And that's what he averaged this season. And we're going to talk overall fantasy value. You can still be the second best shot blocker in the NBA 
if it's a 2.4 versus three, well, you've just carved out 15 spots of value right there. So does that extra minutes, which is usually the way things go, is that you play three extra minutes, it's because you dropped your block rate because you're not going for as many blocks, therefore you're not committing as many fouls. And then that trade-off with more minutes gives him an extra rebound, it gives him an extra point, but you lose half a block. It either leaves you neutral or it drops you down the rankings. It's the, you know, we see it with everyone, like every, basically every big man that does this, even Miles Turner this season played a few more minutes, but his block rate dropped way off. Um, and it just happens as you get older, you block fewer shots. So do you think that this is the best season that we'll see out of Jaron Jackson Jr.? Or do you think he ever finishes higher than 14th? That's a good question. I, I think I think he can be better than this. I think that we can get, at this age, he can play, say, 30, still block 2.8 shots, but maybe be a 20-point scorer, maybe get seven and a half rebounds. I think he can be better than this, but to maintain better than this for five, six years will probably end up being tough. But I think we saw enough out of Jaron this year offensively to suggest that if he turns into a guy that starts blocking two shots a game instead of three, I reckon that could be offset by averaging 23 points a game. Like he could become an offensive juggernaut sort of a player. Not not quite a juggernaut, but let's take it back to prime Chris Bosh. Well, not even Toronto Chris Bosh, you know, sort of a hybrid Toronto-Miami Chris Bosh. 22 points, two threes, two blocks. That's enough to maintain that value. So you would hope the offense pushes up to offset a decrease in blocks. It won't, it might not happen, but I think there's a, there's enough growth in what we saw offensively to have some faith in that. And I think a lot of that came when Ja was suspended, where he was doing more offensively and I believe mm. less blocks during that stretch. But I guess it's Ja's that back right? that may not, he may not, you know, ever have that offensive role to where he feels like he has to watch the fouls and limit the blocks because Jaws not out there. That, that's that's a possibility as well. But I also think that you know, Dylan Brooks chucking is not going to be a factor anymore. So those shots that Dylan Brooks would have hijacked, they're going somewhere. Maybe Jaws already at 35 usage. How much high is that getting? Probably not. So it's Bain and Jaron that probably get a lot of that. Yes, someone will replace Brooks and take Brooks's minutes. What was Brooks's usage of 22, but that guy might be a 17% usage player. So that's, I think where it can, where it can grow for Jaron. And the other guy you just mentioned, Desmond Bain, back to back top 40 seasons. Dylan Brooks is gone now. Mm -hmm. Do you think he's a guy that can take another step forward? Or do you think top 40 to top 50 value is kind of where he can stay? I think he's, we talked about this, he's already 20 or he'll be 25 when the season starts. Yeah. How much more of a ceiling does he have because he came in as an older rookie? I think we talked about this last week on my yeah. show. We talked about Bain and the age and the production and maintaining this level is pretty realistic. I think, again, narrative and perception is really important as well because people will perceive, well, Dylan Brooks was just, and, and I've even said it on this show a couple of times already, so like Dylan Brooks is chucking shots and hijacking the offense, but to be Again, and I, I don't like saying it, but credit to Dylan Brooks because he did tone down some of the usage this season. And in the years past, he would routinely have higher usage than Desmond Bain. You go, what is this dickhead thinking? What is his coaching staff doing? But Bain had 26 and Brooks had 20, 22, right? So he did cede to Bain in the offensive hierarchy this season. And 26 usage is a decent number. Can So while it might be common sense that Brooks has gone to Bain gets more shots, how... Like, does Bain profile as a guy as a higher than 26% usage player? 
and remember usage is part of like you know passing and turnovers and all that sort of stuff is he ever like what do we get hurt further from him? Like he only played 32 minutes. He had that toe injury early. So there is clearly more minutes upside here for Desmond Bain. And that's probably where the growth comes, but I'm not sure how much further offensive load usage upside there is in him. Can he be a better passer and handle the ball a little bit more? Yeah, but he already averaged four and a half assists this season. How much higher does that get? So I think that the growth comes from instead of 32 minutes, it's 34. And I, I, don't, I don't know what you think, but, is there is there usage upside from twenty six? I'm not sure about that. I, like you said, just a little bit probably from Brooks being gone and assuming that they're not going to have somebody in there to to shot check. That assuming that they're going to try and have the offense go through their three main guys. That that's probably the only path to it as long as John Jaron Jackson are on the team and and as long as Bain's on the team, I guess he's more likely to move on before them. Jaron had a twenty five usage and and Bain had a twenty six usage. What's more likely that? Jackson overtakes Bane in usage or the Bane pushes closer to 30. I would, I would guess if, if I were in, I guess Taylor Jenkins and trying to make best use of what I have, I would assume Jaron Jackson gets more usage and gets and overtakes Bane because I'd be trying to, I guess, add that offensive dimension and also limit his fouls, limit the blocks or I get like limit the fouls, keep him on the court, have him do more offensively. I would assume Jaron Jackson surpasses Bain's usage before Bain gets to 30. Yeah. Look, I, I don't think Bain's usage drops. It might right. be 26 and a half or 27, but I think that what you'd be looking to see as this team is like, Hey, what can Jaron do? Like, can we get him a little bit more offensively versus let's push Bain into the all NBA level usage stratosphere? I'm not not sure that 30 usage of Bane is a realistic, a realistic target. Yeah. And then we'll talk about Dylan Brooks. I'll make you talk about him a little bit more. Do you see, since we know it's been made very clear that he's not going to be back in Memphis, do you see a situation where he can be? Because I know there was the report that came out that he wasn't happy with his role in Memphis, that he wanted a mm-hmm. larger offensive role. I don't know if that's necessarily true or if that was him saying that, but is there a spot where he can not necessarily be much of a fantasy impact, but be a starter on a team? Oh, 100%. Like he, he will almost definitely be a starter next season. Where it is, I've got no idea. But you know, what does that what does it mean? And we talk about, like to, to circle back, because you know, we talk about Russell Westbrook being a starter, but a team understand that, ooh, yeah, look, maybe you don't need to close this one out for us um, because you probably take more off the table than you give us. And while Brooks might be a starter, look, he still only played twenty or played thirty minutes again this season. He might be one of those guys where you got to go to the right situation with the right coach who says, "Yeah, bro, I don't think don't think you need to be out here. Like, stop stop it with these drives and foolish layup attempts. Like, get off the court. Like, we don't need you out here at this point." So that's got to be on the right team. So while he could start, that doesn't mean thirty two a night. It doesn't mean big usage and unless you're you know, trying to tank for a number one overall pick, like putting the ball in his hands a ton is not not a winning formula. So I think he's going to have a solid role on a team and probably will start, but I don't think there's any fantasy impact for him, honestly, at all. Like, he's just bad. Like, he doesn't rebound. He doesn't get defensive stats. He doesn't pass enough. He kills you in percentages. And the impact that he can have is means he's always at risk of a quick hook and getting benched down the stretch because of the stupidity that he provides. Yeah. Is there anybody else on this team now that kind of, you would look at 
for Dynasty, either as a stash or as a guy that could possibly produce next season? Um, look, I'm not really buying into Zaire Williams. The guy who came in with a really interesting stat set out of college was Jake LaRavia. He really didn't do anything this season. I thought he was a significantly better prospect than David Roddy, but he copped a lot of injuries this season and they played Roddy over him. I wouldn't give up on LaRavia. He didn't do anything to impress me this season at all, but his college numbers were unbelievable. Like he's a really strong cutter. He could pass, he could defend, he could shoot. He could do basically everything right across the board. It just nothing like that happened this season whatsoever. So we're talking really, really deep and off the radar guys, a guy with a very interesting fantasy skill set out of college is LaRavia, who is still, he's 21 as well. He's actually younger than Zaya Williams and David Roddy. Um, so he's the guy that's the more, most interesting to me, but it's, it's a pretty big long shot of hitting. Yeah, I know I got him in, I think, the fourth round of my rookie draft because I saw he was on Matt Lawson's rankings. So I was like, oh, like this name lines up. He's the highest ranked. He's still available. Yep. I'll take a shot on him. But so I, I followed him a little bit, and then I was like, wait, he's not getting any minutes here. So what do, you think of Kenny, what do you think of Kenny Lofton? I'm not even sure. It's hard for me to – I mean, I haven't done a ton on him to see exactly how he fits there. So honestly, I, I don't know. He is a guy that – yeah, when when we saw that last game of the season, and yeah. before that day, like, yeah, you know, put out a post on Instagram and go, "Hey, the guys you want to add for today, it's Kenny Lofton Jr. Like, he is going to be a big, big scorer for this day." But it's one of those conundrums we always run into in fantasy is that if he if he gets put in the position where he gets the ball, he is going to put up gigantic numbers. There's no doubt about that. But it doesn't, I don't think, lead to any level of winning basketball whatsoever. I still think he defensively he can't hang. He's too slow. He requires too much usage and not providing enough overall impact to do it. And while it's a fun story and he's fun to watch because he's big and he's you know big chungus smashing into people and all that sort of stuff. But like that's he's not I don't think he's any sort of winning level of player who has this huge future of huge upside. It's going to be one of those ones where when random guys are out, he's going to go go crazy. But I tell, you, I tell you who he is. He is a short, fat, modern-day Boban. That The numbers will be great. Like when he's playing, we love when Boban's out there, right? Man, Boban just had 10 and 10 in 12 minutes. Uh, cool. Why didn't he play more than 12 minutes? Well, uh, well there's, there's the question, isn't it? <laughs> and I think that might be a little bit of Kenny Lofton. Is that the numbers will look insane. The per 36s will look great. But... If you're trying to actually do positive stuff on the quarter, I'm not sure that he ties into that. Yeah. And I just trying to win games. Is he going to actually play the 40 minutes needed for him to score 42 and grab 14 he, rebounds? He, he's still only 20. So look, I can't write it off completely, but I just think there is a, a lot of weird stuff that would need to happen. It's like another guy that for some reason he brings up in my head is like um, Kenneth Farid. It's like, man, we're freed. If, yeah, look, he's always going to be a double-double. Why don't they play more? Well, because you know there are significant limitations as to what he does on the other end and to when the ball's in his hands, he never passes. And where does he fit in in a winning team? And the answer is you know, nowhere because that's why he's not in the league anymore. And I feel that Lofton's a little bit of that sort of player. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that was the fun game, but probably his only shine. But is there anybody else you want to talk about from Memphis? I mean, if, if there's not, that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, look, look, they're interesting players. Like Aldama's interesting, but it probably doesn't make any sense on this team in the future. Tillman is a really solid backup center, but yeah, they're not game changing type of guys, I don't think. Yeah, I was, I was in the same boat. I had my the top three that are definites, and then kind of everybody else. I'm not 
not entirely sure, especially within this team, how they exactly they fit out. But mm. um, before we go, if you were, I guess, could you give some advice to anybody that would be interested in getting into any sort of content creation, whether it's written or videos or podcasting or just Twitter threads? Um, my number one advice that I always give people and people may have heard this before is you just, you've got to be consistent, right? Whatever you do, you've got to be consistent. And that doesn't mean you, you do the same thing all the time. Like you're always evolving and, and changing and thinking about what you're doing, but you see so many people do stuff and, and they go, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to start this podcast and I'm going to write these articles and then we're going to do this all the time. And then they disappear for two weeks at a time. So, oh, sorry, guys, life got busy. Um, and here we are, we're back again. And then they fade away again. And nobody cares. Like the viewers, the listeners, the readers, they don't care if you're not there, right? They, they will, someone else will fill in that space. They'll find something else to do. You have to do what you do, whatever it is, once a week, every two weeks, twice a week, every day, whatever it is, you got to be consistent with it. You got to produce consistent product, persistent, consistent quality and consistent timing and that's how you develop an audience and it takes a bloody long time to get there and if you're not committed to it and you're giving up after three weeks because you haven't man why haven't i got ten thousand downloads i put out two episodes what's going on um no you gotta put out a thousand of them and then you see what happens from there but you've got to be consistent that's your number one thing and i think the other thing you mentioned this right at the beginning of the episode is filling a space trying to find something that I mean, that's what you did. You found something that nobody else was mm. really doing and just filled that space. Is that, I guess that's something else that could still work. Yeah. Yeah. Find something that's different. Find, but you know, it's okay to do stuff that's similar to other people. Sometimes people will be like, will come to me and go, oh man, is it okay if I you do this thing that, that you've been doing and I do something like, bro, look, no, no idea is original. Like it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm not reinventing the wheel by doing a, um, like a, a team review podcast. Like, that shit exists forever. Like if I do a mock draft, it's not, everyone's done it, right? It's not about that. It's a bit, do it, make it unique to yourself because the ideas are going to be recycled amongst a bunch of different things. Find the space, find the, the voice that fills the space as well. Yeah. So you're doing a dynasty show, which there's not as much content around that. That's a space, but then you can compare it with other dynasty shows, but the way you approach it can be something different as well. And can be in a, in a different area, and it can just be the way that you approach the game. You might say, "Well, hey, I there's not many dynasty points leagues podcasts. Maybe I'll do that because that doesn't exist. I'm still doing dynasty, but it's a different slant to what other people are producing. Or I'm looking more at, you know, dynasty. Uh, my focus is more on dynasty trades, or it's on whatever it is. We're doing a lot more of of points league content or category league content or whatever it is. But like, there's always openings in there, and then." turning your style becomes the uniqueness of it as well. And Josh, where can we, or what should we be on the lookout for you for this summer coming up? What work? <sighs> Lots, man. Um, doing team review podcasts at the moment. We're going to start next week is the lottery. So we're going to do a, our first NBA mock draft there. And then a bunch of NBA draft content coming after that. We're already trying to wrangle in some draft analysts to discuss all the prospects. I think we covered about 60 prospects last year. We'll probably look for the same amount there to give you an understanding of who these guys are and what their strengths and weaknesses are. Like you might think that it doesn't really mean that much for fantasy to, to know that, but it does like every little bit of information that you get at this point mean like helps when 
the player starts to, especially in Dynasty, when they start to get minutes or understanding what to expect from them and their strengths and weaknesses that might take three years to show at the NBA level is getting that little bit of base value there. So we're going to be doing the team review stuff and then transitioning into NBA draft content all the way through the NBA draft. Yeah, that's stuff that I'll definitely be checking out and using as I create some Dynasty content as well. Uh, But Josh, thanks for joining me on this episode. Not a problem, man. Anytime. Absolutely. And this was episode seven of the Tank Me Later podcast.